0: Back to another episode of Keep It. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, could you walk on by? I'm Louis Fertel. <laughs> and I am Iron Madison
2: III, and I am positive that birds do not appear every time I'm
0: near. <laughs> that is a clinical issue. If that occurs in your romance, it has nothing to do with love. It's, uh, that's, it's that a hygiene a, thing. Yeah.
2: That is a scary song, Carrie Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, Burt suddenly appearing every time she sees this man, run! Yeah. <laughs> <Pippi Hedra. laughs> to get you. Jeez, yeah, wow.
0: Yeah, Hitchcock, is is he a credited co-writer on this? What's happening?
2: Um So, Bert Bacharach died this week at the age of 94. Honestly, I did not know he was still alive.
0: It's pretty remarkable he was still alive. Because also, <laughs> Hal David, his main songwriting partner, he had a few over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, including Carol Bayer Sager with whom he won his uh, third Oscar for Arthur's theme, the best that you can do, but Hal David also died at 91, but that was some time ago. So you would assume that Bert was like his age and that he'd be, you know, 114 now. So, but he's not. Um, but Bert was on my mind recently because there's a new Dionne Warwick documentary out on HBO max and a couple of Is things it about her tweeting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's called Dionne Warwick Touchgrass, and it's about how she needs to get off the computer. Um. The tweet
2: that she sent out about about Bert's passing was, like, so sweet and moving, and I was like, oh, this feels like the first tweet that Dionne Warwick has actually tweeted herself.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I don't know what it, in living her color writer's doing room is on her Twitter. Yeah, it's very <laughs> shocking. But um, I will say about that Dionne Warwick documentary, I wish it had come out 20 years ago because so many of the people that um, populated her time in popular music, you mm-hmm. know, are obviously gone now. There are a couple of, you know, at the time, uh, Burt Bacharach's in the documentary. Um, uh, Barry Gibb is in the documentary. Uh, you know, a couple of relatives of her, like Sissy Houston, I think makes an appearance, but Um, I really wish we had gotten this entire documentary uh, years ago because Burt's story with Dion is so integral to pop music. They have such an amazing relationship. You can YouTube videos of them literally working together on songs where he's like, Dion, I've got another humdinger on my hands. And she goes, well, if it's too hard, you can just sing it. And like they have this (laughs) fun back and forth. Um, It's impossible to pick a favorite song of theirs. It's crazy to me still. That American Idol would have Bert Bacharach weeks. This was a this was a an American sensation. And they would put on these, you know, lilting melodies for kids in like Charlotte Roos crop tops to sing. It's still <laughs> mind-boggling. Okay, that is the thing that
2: I was gonna bring up because I feel like Bert Bacharach is a name that is, even if you don't really know everything about him for people our age. You know that name because of American Idol, and it's so weird. I like, I watched the season two, uh, like top five do, um, what the world needs now is love. Like I watched that clip, and it was like a mind fuck <laughs> watching like Clay Aiken <laughs> walk out first, like Ruben back there. I was like, these, where are these people?
0: Competitively- and it's weird that we
2: watched it every week and right. people were screaming people screamed when, like someone like hit a note
0: right no i i I don't know how they brainwashed us into you know <laughs> in, into this like kind of eurovisiony thing that we were all um obsessed with and i guess still are it's still like a popular network tv show but um uh the amount of fabulous songs i had tweeted when he died that uh nobody made sentimentality seem sophisticated like Burt Backrock. Mm. It wasn't just syrupy ballads. There was like some w- wit to everything he did. And a part of that is Hal David, his lyricist, writing a lot of those songs. I'm talking about Walk on By, I Say a Little Prayer, Um, Anyone Who Had a Heart, Don't Make Me Over, which is also the name of that Dion Warwick documentary. My favorite, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Which is secretly mm. the bleakest song in existence because it has this light <laughs> melody, but it's about how I failed at LA and I'm moving back to. San Jose, where I have get ready, lots of friends. Oh, what could be bleaker? Oh, oh. I've got lots um, of friends in San Jose. I'm gonna go back there now and live in live in filth, live in my <laughs> failure.
2: Make way for Dion Warwick is such a great album. And it's like it's like even looking at the cover, it's like it's not even like the Dion that we even remember from like when we were kids. You know? Yeah. Like she like she had such a transformation after that, you know. Um and the music is great. I like, I know that a lot of people um, who are millennials probably were introduced to Burt Bacharach either through American Idol or through um, Austin Powers.
0: Yes, his sort of um, kitschy appearances in the Austin Powers movies.
2: Yeah. Uh, but let me tell you something. You know a song I really love? Mm. What's New Pussycat?
0: Oh, please. Tom, Tom Jones, I feel like we <laughs> still are due for a little bit of a renaissance for how well how he has a powerful voice but it's also just a kind of like hearty there's a heartiness about tom jones that i think is not replicated much in pop music nowadays
2: i'm always shocked with like i was at um a gay club like a few weeks ago shocker uh and um Sex Bob played, and, like, everyone knew the lyrics, and I was like, I know all of you were not watching the one-season WB series Gross Point like I was, which had um, Sex Bob as the theme
0: song, so how does everyone know this song? That is really puzzling, and good for you for being at whatever club that was. Yeah, uh, I
2: truly think it was, like, just, I think it was Flaming Saddles in New
0: York. I guess it could be nowhere else. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really <laughs> fabulous. You know what else I want to say about Bob I mean, he wrote uh, close to you for Carpenters, he wrote mm. for Dusty Springfield, Tom Jones, as we just said. I think something I really love about their songwriting apart from the the wit of it and just the 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 lightness of it is they wrote for vocalists who were rarely belting. It was really mm-hmm. about like people who interpreted a song and you were th- they have a an awesome voice, but you're, you're literally listening to what they're saying. In addition in to listening to their voice, they mm-hmm. really had a good, a storytelling quality. And I think it, like, for example, just to talk about walk on by a song, we all know that the sweetness of the melody and the hurt of that song. I think what resonates with me about that is what could be more relatable to life. Like you feel a certain way, but you still have to put on a brave sing song face to get through life. So that like, juxtaposition of sweetness and sadness is you know how to be a person how to be, how to like deal with things how to um go on with your life how to walk on by so to speak so uh just second to none he and Hal David are definitely up there with Lennon McCartney or Carol King and Jerry Goff and just the absolutely essential songwriters that um everybody should be somewhat familiar with literally look up Dionne Warwick's first greatest hits which is I think exclusively Burt Bacharach songs mm-hmm.
3: um
0: Trains and Boats and Planes, uh, Are You There with Another Girl. There's fabulous mm-hmm. songs there. I actually have a quick story about that. My friend Andrew and I, my friend Andrew is about 15 years older than I am, and I lived behind him in his guest house for seven years when I was in L.A., and on the weekends, we would go put on Dion and go to someplace like Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale or something where you can like walk around and talk, and one day, we were driving to the Reagan Library, with my dad in the car who was visiting. And of course, Andrew and I are like fagging out, talking about Dion Warwick. And we put on, are you there with another girl? Which is about Dion suspecting that her man is cheating. And he goes, she goes to his house. And anyway, Dion's stalking him is what's happening in the song. It's a creepy <laughs> song. And at some point it gets to a point in the song where she goes, are you uh, are you there with another girl? And then this other vocal comes in that's like, bah, bah, bah. It makes, it's like a loud, high pitched noise. And we're kind of making fun of it. And my dad goes, that's the voice they hear on her radio. Are you there with another girl? And she's talking about, um, I, I can hear, you're playing the radio for some girl. Anyway, I just want you to know that I did not expect my dad to read his fucking faggots for filth about the dramaturgy of a Dionne Warwick song. And it sits poorly <laughs> with me even though. <laughs> ah, uh,
2: not your dad gagging you over Dionne. I know, <laughs>
0: I, I didn't think it would ever be me.
2: Yeah, I mean, truly... Bird Back is like um that is the epitome of the the Whitney meme you know like songs like that tell stories that people can yes. identify with children <laughs> were singing this song <laughs> at weddings graduations on their way to the Ronald Reagan library <laughs> <laughs> which is a funeral
0: um, to me so yes
2: also i have long wondered what the hell sparked um your fascination with wandering around cemeteries
0: because you love doing it i did oh during the pandemic i would go to forest lawn and like look for clark gable's grave i can't explain (laughs) it i guess it was just mostly a way to like you know be outside and walk around and have something to look at as Mm -hmm. opposed to just like you know running down the streets which by the way is deranged behavior that i can't believe people still do
2: yeah, I love a cemetery. You know, there was a, there was truly a cemetery across the street um, from my house uh in Milwaukee growing up. And so I, you know, I used to hang out there all the time. You know, people would jog there. Um in high school, I filmed a um I filmed a short film there. I also
0: uh, did that in high school cuz I grew up in a town uh, I uh, has has a ton of churches in it and therefore mm-hmm. there are a ton of cemeteries there too so you're always like walking by one or something in fact uh diablo cody who's from um uh where i'm from lamont illinois said you could you could almost judge the the, the class of somebody by how close they live to a cemetery in Lamont. Like, the further away you got, the more, you know, maybe you were ritzy or something. You know, we were like, we were smashed up against tombstones, both of us.
2: Love those sock hops at the cemetery, yeah. you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, never stumbled on any mysteries, though. Rarely, no,
0: yeah. yeah. The Great Pumpkin never appeared either yet, so. <laughs>
2: uh, well, we have got uh, a packed episode full of a lot of music chat True. rihanna is back maybe walking around
0: yeah she's walking around <laughs> i saw
2: that yeah. walk on by she did that
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh the super bowl happened, and we're gonna wait through all of the takes on rihanna's big return to music And then we're also going to get into another divisive topic in pop culture right now. Sex scenes in movies and TV.
0: And is it really all of Gen Z that's upset about this? Or is it secretly six people? I need somebody to do the hard (laughs) journalism on this.
2: It's six people and Ben Badgley.
0: Okay, right. Oh, yes. Very stirring statement. Yeah. So
2: uh, we'll get into all of that. Plus... Um, icon, uh, model, trans activist Monroe Bergdorf is here with us this week to talk about her new memoir and also continuing the keep it trend of getting boots on the ground information about award shows that we did not attend. She was just at the Brits, um, recently, and, uh, we're going to get the tea on that as well.
0: Was Was she injured by the helium machine that inflated Sam Smith's outfit? We'll see. (laughs) <laughs> we'll be right back with more Keep it.
2: We're excited to announce the return of Stuck with Damon Young, an original podcast from Crooked and Spotify. On this show, award-winning author Damon Young has returned for more off-the-cuff conversations inspired by today's most culturally relevant headlines and roundups of Damon-approved listener-submitted questions. He's joined by some of the brightest minds and bold voices of the Black community, including Kiese Layman, Roy Wood Jr., Elaine Walteroth, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and more. The trailer is live right now, and the first episode drops on February 16th. Listen to Stuck with Damon Young for free only on Spotify. <laughs> Super Bowl 57 aired on Sunday with the Kansas City Chiefs ultimately defeating the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35. And for most of our listeners, this is probably the first time you've heard any of that information.
0: Oh, no, I absolutely <laughs> predicted that. The Kansas City whomevers up against the Philadelphia You Go Girls, I absolutely knew it would go down this way.
2: Super Bowl 57. How many Oscars have we had?
0: we're now at 95.
2: Okay. So, the Oscars have been going on longer than the Super Bowl.
0: It's the Super Bowl is a surprisingly recent development in American culture. Like it like the Super Bowl began in 1967. It's very strange.
2: It's the 60s, what was going on in the 60s where they were like, "You know what? We need a bigger game."
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess people got sick of what were they have been watching then? Baseball and golf, I guess.
2: But we don't care about that shit anyway because let me tell you something. As soon as Rihanna finished her concert, um we started playing old Super Bowl halftime shows, which I feel like is what every gay viewing party does.
0: Right. Well, I actually made the mistake of watching all the other halftime shows in the days leading up to Rihanna, not Mm. doing the math that, of course, I'm going to be watching these afterwards, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the way, I don't know that that was brilliant math on our part anyway, because when you compare the Rihanna show to almost any other show in recent (laughs) memory, you will be coming up short. I'm sorry. (laughs) Look, again, it's like the woman's pregnant. She hasn't performed regularly in a million years. You know, she's like like Gene Hackman at this point, which pops out of her shell once in a while with like some weird <laughs> book you don't want or whatever. She
2: um, is a little Willy Wonka-esque.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Right. <That's>,
2: yeah, everyone, <laughs> um, I can imagine her having uh, a thing where there are golden tickets in like Fenty makeup cases. And then oh, she invites God. five people to the Finzi factory.
0: I need her to not get ideas like that because let's <laughs> let's put her back on the billboard charts. I'm getting nervous, but um look, I mean she gave you the utter like abba gold of rihanna hits you know there are there are there are a couple of notable exclusions like i was surprised not to hear sos at all but i guess she's probably mm-hmm. just sick no pun to replay no pun to replay no if it's loving that you want which you know is one of my secret faves um, <laughs> if she played that i actually would have fallen out that would have been
2: crazy but um uh, i would agree abba gold is a apt description of it because i will say this was more of a medley that i think we've ever gotten in recent memory for um a super bowl performance you know even like madonna beyonce you know like shakira j-lo uh katie perry like there's at least one big song that feels like it gets more than 30 seconds yes the centerpiece right. of it you know like and beyonce you know had the um that's the one we put on first, Atron. You know, you had not just the Destiny's Child appearing, you know, but, like, there were different set pieces. I will say that visually, this was gorgeous. I, like, love I love the look camera work. It. I love, yes. like, it was beautiful. Uh, I love the dancers. But I would also say that, not- there, like, it. W- this shit wasn't in different areas. Okay? No. <laughs> like, it was, uh, no.
0: It literally went up and down. That's what yeah.
2: happened. Yeah. Um, the, like, there, there weren't different set pieces. There weren't costume changes. She was really just vibing. And listen, I'm not saying I expected anything more because Rihanna has always been vibes. Sure. No, she's, she's, like,
0: so- the, she's like the <laughs> premier vibe.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like, she comes, she hangs out, and we have a good time. You're not expecting to be wowed. You're not saying she's the best pop star ever. She's never been the best pop star ever.
0: Right, I know, the but music like, has
2: always been great, and it dominates mm-hmm. the charts, But she has never been like a performance beast.
0: no. She's not somebody who's, like jumping in the air and landing in a split or anything like that. That said, I do feel like her fans went off the deep end defending this performance, generally <laughs> speaking because they're like, for, like, I just don't think it's an amazing defense to be like, well, if you're not used to being underwhelmed, you're not a fan of hers or whatever the fuck they're saying. <laughs> it's like, well, that's. That's not good news either. I don't know. Because also she's done plenty of great performances before. You know, like she's uh you know the amount of AMA's performances she's been great or VMAs. Um, the VMA
2: like- Vanguard is my favorite performance of hers. Yes. it's just like I there agree. were three different there were three different components. Uh it felt like it felt like amped up. There was a lot of energy. Uh I've rewatched it and I enjoyed it. Uh but I will say upon rewatch like I was ready to turn it off before it ended.
0: Yes. I I I've watched it twice, and the second time I I, I wasn't finding new and interesting things to look at or anything. Mm-hmm. But it's like you said, um, like if you look at uh, Madonna's halftime show, altogether, all together, including two snippets like of Open Your Heart and Express Yourself, there are only six songs in that. You know, yeah. it's like, like she does like all of Gimme All Your Love which you know she will pay for her crimes eventually. But um <laughs> But like in this reality, you got way more than that. And so I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, what songs do you think will like top the iTunes or whatever? The Apple Music charts, Spotify charts after this. And I actually didn't know. Uh, I I guessed that Diamonds, because it ended the, Medley would be the big one. I guess the biggest percentage jump was "Bitch Better Have My Money," which Mm. makes sense since it's probably the least popular. Yeah,
2: and And you say that because you
0: opened it, and also I think that no
2: one was really expecting
0: that song,
2: right? Just because it's the Super Bowl and they're always angry about anything, you know. But I thought I thought that was a great opener. I thought that that grabbed us all, and I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be hot." Right, uh, because like the lyrics also work you know like don't act like you forgot you know like turn up to Rihanna like that feels like an anthem for her um, the one I was shocked about too was um, not because of the Kanye of it, all, of it all but like I was shocked about all the lights just because I was yeah. like oh she remembered that song
0: well it also <laughs> was a little bit harrowing at that point because there were no features yet so you yeah. were wondering like oh is he going to come front hand springing on out you know With a shout to Jesus or whatever. But I knew Jay
2: Z wasn't letting that man anywhere near uh, his Super Bowl.
0: Right, yes. No, Jay Jay didn't. I think Jay Z was um, walking the perimeter, making sure he wasn't there,
2: though. Yeah. (laughs) That's why Jay didn't jump on for any of his features with Rihanna. He was making (laughs) sure Kanye did not show up.
0: He was in the lighthouse. Yeah. Look it out.
2: (laughs) Um, Overall, I'm excited to have Rihanna back, but um, it didn't feel like a return. It felt it felt someone Someone described it as a
0: retirement. <laughs> right? Oh no, not a, a repology, not not the RuPaul <laughs> universe of revenge. Yeah, but didn't it feel like
2: like she was like elder stateswoman? Like here, here's some of those hits you love. Now
0: goodbye. I will say she did look sensational the minute yeah. she hit the stage. I'm like, I absolutely, I love the uh, sartorial shout out to Andre Leon Talley, mm-hmm. um, which loved it, and he was so into her too. So yeah. that's such a fun little pop cultural moment. But um, yeah, I mean, it just she did nothing. She didn't do anything on stage I didn't know she was capable of. And I'm again, I'm not saying she has to like jump through a ring of fire or anything, but it didn't even it didn't feel like there was a moment of real ingenuity there. Like if you look at like the Shakira J-Lo performance, and I I don't mean to compare the performance styles of like Rihanna to Olympic decathlete J-Lo, who will fully, <laughs> you know, like pole vault over whatever Cuba <laughs> or bionic um,
2: woman, Shakira.
0: Yes. Oh yeah. Bionic woman, Shakira. But like in those performances, they both found like w- weird moments to like like J-Lo suddenly do a really Spanish oriented dance or, um, Shakira like doing a shout out to Led Zeppelin there's just like Mm -hmm. interesting artistic pangs in there and I also want to say about that performance having two performers is I think a pretty awesome mix Mm -hmm. because then they get to volley between each other and so you're always caught off guard a little bit and there's like a Mm -hmm. fun suspense to whatever's going on not that I don't like the Katy Perry or the um, Beyonce years or whatever but just the idea that there's something a little unique about the moment that it's two people who've never been together on a stage before. And of course, once upon a time, you'd see more of this at the Super Bowl with like Janet Jackson and InSync swinging in. But I think just two performers yeah. is a pretty ideal thing.
2: I want to throw back next year to sort of like the Aerosmith with InSync, um, Britney, Mary J. Blige, and Nelly. Like, give us like, give us a bunch of people. Because yeah. I sort of feel like we have a lot of pop stars right now who can't really carry... Yeah, A show with, like, the a, a mass amount of hits, except, like, maybe an Usher. And I will say, fuck the people who were sort of trying to, like, discredit Usher after the show, being like, he doesn't have the hits to do the Super Bowl. Are you kidding?
0: Excuse me? Who does, then? <laughs> it's been, like,
2: 25 years. He's got nothing but hits. And, like, so many number ones.
0: Right. I, I I'm trying to contrive what I believe will be the, the medley coming up. Like, if it's, first of all, it feels strange that Pink has never done it. One, because of the amount of hits. And two, I just feel like she has beaten up a cheerleader at some point. So I feel like she belongs at the Super Bowl.
2: Um, I think Pink culturally, though, I feel like if Pink is there, it's with
0: someone else. Yes. I wonder who that would be. Who would bring out Pink,
2: you know? Usher and
0: Pink, that, that doesn't not speak to me.
2: Yeah. I feel like someone like a... I mean, I don't know, I don't know her vibe with Taylor Swift, you know, but I feel like I try to think about who would fit with Taylor. And I'm like, if Taylor, and I know they were courting Taylor for this Super Bowl as well. If Taylor did the Super Bowl next year and Pink came out, I think that'd be a little iconic.
0: Could be, could be. Taylor, I feel like would inevitably do it on her own though, right?
2: I know she loves women empowerment. Uh (laughs) I think that she would have like some other women on stage with her for at least one moment.
0: Oh, I would love it if she did, like, a night of a hundred stars, like, introducing woman after woman like she did on that old tour. Like, here comes yeah. John Baez again or whoever the fuck she was with at that with. <laughs>
2: Lady Smith Black Mambazo appears. <laughs> oh, yes.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. She's going to take us to Graceland. <laughs>
2: uh, so, but also, this was such a weird year, too, because I didn't really give a fuck about any other commercials. I think I'm over Super Bowl commercials.
0: Well, it is just that weird feeling of do you think because you spend 200 million dollars that the commercial will suddenly be funnier i assure you that's not the case (laughs) it is always a puzzling mix like you can see like like oh they're gonna put who alice and brie or who is it brie larson and john ham together and say ham and brie it's like yeah it's supposed to be iconic because it's words it it just doesn't add up to anything for me i mean it's just the grossest, most corporate moment in popular culture that we all are find a way to be obsessed with via one form or another. For the you know, for the queers, it's the halftime show. But everything else just feels like loud and you know, unseemly. And they used to
2: be fun. I will say Super Bowl commercials like have always been expensive, but they used to be fun. And you know, not to be one of these old people, but like yeah. you used to not see the Super Bowl commercial until the Super Bowl.
0: Oh, totally right. Everything's leaked beforehand.
2: Yeah, and then they really started, like, dropping them online before, and then I'm like, who cares, you know? And none of them real, really feel as fun and innovative, you know, as, like, throwing some Doritos in um a dryer at the laundromat,
0: you know? Like, right, that's right. fun. <laughs> also, I think just the – because commercials are sort of, like, a lost language now, If mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same impact to watch commercials anymore. Like, what is this show in between? It just it, – it, it feels old hat.
2: You know, honestly, someone should drop like a music video during the Super Bowl or something, you know, like instead of a commercial.
0: Um, My my brother Jim acquainted me with the fact that once upon a time during the, in the middle of the Super Bowl, we wouldn't watch the halftime show. We would go and watch the new episode of In Living Color on another network.
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. I do remember that like Fox and like other networks like used to drop like a Super Bowl, I think mid Super Bowl. And also, Lost is the art of, um, debuting a show after the super bowl or like the big alias episode where um they made a point of like she was doing spy shit but like in lingerie on a plane this time because it was like oh we gotta lure in the men
0: right right tits (laughs) out for the boys etc no something that always blows my mind is that the wonder years which is among the like quietest dramedy sensations of all time debuted immediately after the super bowl What a crazy thing to watch. Like, oh, we're going to. It's a 12 year old in 1968 whose crush loses her brother in Vietnam. Like, that's what Mm -hmm. we're watching after the Super Bowl. It's so bizarre. I
2: mean, now speaking of like Super Bowl commercials that really got me horny, uh, like
0: they always, you know, they got to court men. Um, Jesus. (laughs) Oh my God. They had all these commentators on the Super Bowl, but nobody was more opinionated than Jesus. Oh my God.
2: (laughs) Jesus opened her purse, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> let me tell you something. I like, usually I hate when people are repeating the same take on Twitter, where it's like, okay, this isn't an original thought, and you're just, like, writing it. When people kept saying, well, if G- if the church can afford this much money for a Super Bowl commercial, they can afford to pay taxes, and everyone, like, posting that um, like it
0: was an original thought. Yeah, <laughs> Right. I do agree. <laughs> Mind you, this is some, like, weird organization, right? Like, yeah. That has, like... Anti-LGBT ties, even though the messaging of some of this was Jesus gets everybody, not just, yeah. you know, the same people you think he gets. Well, he got Josh Bassett this week. I am upset because <laughs> Josh Bassett is caught in God's butterfly net and I need him to get out of it.
2: It's kind of gag worthy, though. Getting baptized by a homophobic mega church. <laughs> Mega church
0: like you can hear the words, right? They're horrible together. It's just like it's apocalyptic sounding.
2: He's been, you know, he's been running, running, running <laughs> ever since um ever since that accidental coming out, you know? And it's hilarious. It I love how all roads always lead back to Harry Styles, but literally it was like him saying on like a live interview that he thought Harry Styles was hot. <laughs> and that's how he outed himself. And that will never not be funny to me
0: right and now maybe because of that we will always see Harry Styles in spangled vests
2: yeah. um, it will also never not be funny that the next day he cancelled his appearance on Keep It uh,
0: right. oh right <laughs> I totally to forgot that
2: he he came out the day before he was supposed to appear on the show and then that ended
0: it's almost <laughs> like he doesn't think we're inviting queer you know <laughs> mentors which really bothers me what the fuck else are we
2: he did not want us to be all up in his business like a windy interview okay
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Because certainly we would have bullied him. You know how that goes with us. How we treat our guests.
2: By the way, I got the Mariah Lyric rock. It's the 2009 Harvard graduating class from her song um, that I referenced last week. You know, not 2010. So shout out to the person who bothered me about it in my mentions.
0: Oh, oh. Which, by the way, Mariah Carey has never done a Super Bowl halftime show. Wouldn't recommend it now, but that would have been sweet once upon a time.
2: I would definitely recommend it
0: now. It'd be so funny. I mean, I would hope she would, first of all, never stand up. Just fully sitting on a tuffet the entire time, you know, carried around, you know, people feeding her grapes, Mae West style and all that. I mean, but by the way,
2: all the Super Bowl is lip synced anyway, so she'd sound great.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, by the way, though, how much of Rihanna's thing was lip-synced?
2: Uh, well, per NFL policy, all halftime rehearsals are re-recorded and played back during the show as a safety net. So the performer sings over it as little or as much as they like. But like when people were accusing Queen Shirley Ralph of lip-syncing, I'm like, baby, Whitney's Super Bowl performance was lip-synced. She sang sure over a recorded track, you know, because it's, it's cold as fuck out there.
0: Right. No, even um, I believe when the Dixie Chicks did the National Anthem, that was lip synced, which it doesn't look like that at all. Yeah. So, um, you know, you have to open your eyes and, and and your minds to think about how the acoustics of these things work.
2: Also, people need to figure out, people also need to learn exactly what lip syncing is, because, like, there's a difference between Milli Vanilli right. and, like, you're singing over a track that you've already recorded.
0: Right, right. Can I just say, by the way, about Millie Vanilli? Um, the haters are jealous because the box <laughs> I'm sorry, baby. Don't forget my number, mother. <laughs> Excuse me. That you're in the car. It's a good time. And blame it on the rain, etc. Uh, girl, you know it's true. I could go on and on.
2: Millie Vanilli. Actually, I couldn't. They don't have
0: that many hits, but
2: yeah. <laughs> they were ahead of their time. Is what they were. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: Right. Who would give a fuck about two people lip syncing right now?
0: Also, do you know what I want to say is actually secretly the funniest thing about Millie Vanilli? Like, so okay, they couldn't sing, so you would think, oh, it's in the service of, you know, incredible showmanship. The dancing is so fucking bad. The dancing <laughs> is hilariously <laughs> awful. <laughs> like, for, like, for instance, like Paula Abdul, that's somebody who would lip sync almost any time she got on a stage. Paula is like popping and locking and you know, puts on the blazer and Leotard and gets down with it. Millie Vanilli, <laughs> I believe they had hats. <laughs> I, that's, that's a biopic I want. Honestly, yes, like totally.
2: the fact that someone was like, we're going to put these two up here.
0: <laughs> They're like despairing as they put it together. Like, <laughs> I guess it's these two.
2: And, and then Fab. it's a hit. Yeah. So It's almost like, it's, it's, it's almost like the producers. It's a hit that it's like, well, we got to keep this going.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I continue to be confused about their downfall because the way it, Legend says it precipitated. They were doing some live performance. The tape they were singing to started skipping. Like you can mm. look this up on YouTube. Like and it goes like girl you know it's girl you know it's girl you know it's and they eventually just leave the stage like trying to get away from it. And but tons of people lip sync. You know like the Madonna VMA yeah. performance of Vogue is lip synced. If that started skipping, I wouldn't think oh Madonna has no merit whatsoever. So I don't I I don't know the exact moment. Uh, you know, they decided But I
2: feel like the real person had to have come out because the thing about Millie Vanilla is like it wasn't even their voices.
0: No, not even close. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. It was very singing in the rain. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing if they talked like Gene Hagen. You know, just like. <laughs> we gotta give
2: this back. Yeah. <laughs> um, the girl you know's true. Video is actually uh, what Diego Calvo watches at the end of Babylon. No. So. <laughs> it's why he's crying. Yeah. It's so good.
0: <laughs> and he's right.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) Hollywood is magic.
2: All right, when we are back, Monroe Bergdorf uh, joins us to discuss her new memoir, Transitional. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the
0: dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof! what a life I've had.
2: Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect
0: based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with Glad. So they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted (laughs) it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest.
2: Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one. You just turned
0: to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah, or broke the fourth wall. (laughs) (laughs) You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when... It feels affirming when others, blank, I connect to my community by, I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. Kind of to say whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for.
2: Our guest today is an indisputable powerhouse model, writer, activist, and fashion icon. She's a contributing editor to British Vogue and rose to prominence in 2017 after becoming the first trans model to front a L'Oreal campaign. She's beautiful. She is a genius. You know her from every single magazine cover in existence, and her memoir, Transitional, In One Way or Another, We All Transition, is out next week. Please welcome to Keep It, Monroe Bergdorf.
4: Hi. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. I always always feel so strange when people do introductions with me right there. I'm just like, ah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're Lydia Tarr. It's like, here we go.
2: This is (laughs) everything that you've done. It's a lot to live up (laughs) to. She was born. Yes. Uh, so before we even get into this, um, mm-hmm. I have some questions because you were at the Brits this
4: past I week. I was, I was, yeah, in full latex. Tell
2: us, tell us all about it because we cover so many award shows on Keep It and I feel like the Brits is still the one that's sort of like foreign to us. I mean, it's literally foreign to us, but also, you know, like, what the hell goes on at the Brits?
4: It's pretty scandalous, I won't lie. Um, Brits, when we party, we party. And the music industry in the UK is notoriously um, quite scandalous on Brits night. Like, all rules go out the window, all bets <laughs> are off. It was pretty amazing, actually. Um, there's, like, no shame about being a little drunk on stage um, so it just feels good to see everybody letting their hair down, people were kissing, people were partying, the bathroom was lit. Um, yeah, it was good. It was fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, it feels like the Brit Awards, if I'm going back through time, like that's where I, I get the really like gay Kylie Minogue performance or something. You know, just like I feel like they have a little bit more flavor and like they're more uninhibited over there.
4: I think so. I mean, if you look back throughout history, the Brits has so many amazing queer moments. Even if it's not by queer artists, it's still, like, very queer. Like, the Spice Girls iconic moment with Jerry Halliwell in the Union Jack dress, Kylie Minogue coming out of a mm-hmm. massive CD player. Um, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jerry Halliwell as well did um, a solo performance where she came out of a giant pair of legs. Um, so it's... <laughs> It's very queer, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um well then two queer questions about um the Brits. One, just out of curiosity, like what did Sam, what did their outfit look like in person? And did they change before they had to sit down?
4: I didn't see the red carpet look, uh, but I was mm-hmm. living because I saw um on the screens as as I came in, I think they arrived after me but I know a lot of people mm-hmm. were talking about it and I was living for it. I was also wearing latex. So I was like, yes, I'm not the only one. <laughs> it, it, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a moment. I'm <laughs> of. Uh, So yeah, it, it was, it was great. Uh, I think that uh, everything that Sam's doing right now is very exciting. And obviously it's getting people's backs up and I live for that. So, uh, yeah, I think um, more drama. Isn't it about time that theatre came back? Things were so boring for so True. long. True. We, like, we now need I some feel, drama, you know? Right, now I feel like award show performances are like scandalous and racy and exciting again. And, you know, all of this, you know, it's getting the evangelicals back stuff and we live for that, so...
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have one more question about the Brits and sort of the Best Artist award uh mm. because uh that's such an interesting oh. thing to me because I know there's been a push um, mm. in so many awards ceremonies, you know, for like the genderless genderless categories, you know. I know specifically yeah. um an actor dropped out of um Tony consideration for Anne Juliet because there wasn't a category, you know, for non-binary actors. They didn't want to put themselves into best actor, best actress. Um but then you have a situation like the Brits where it's um genderless for the first time and then no women are nominated whatsoever.
4: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's really down to the board who nominate the artists. Um, If you're going to have genderless categories, then you need to ensure that it's a fair split um, and that the people being nominated, that it's representative of the industry as it actually is. Um, You know, the Brits, that category isn't nominated by the public. Um, Mm. So the the nominees are... um, you know, it's it's picked by a board, and I I think that there's no excuse really in that case. Um, it's not that there just wasn't any women that were voted by the public. It was that women just consciously weren't included. So I think it's really important that there are genderless categories so that non-binary people uh, can be included within um, the ceremony. Um, but I think that you know it's really down to uh, the process of nomination and ensuring that. Um, If you if you've got genderless categories, then just think about how you nominate and who is included, Uh, because there's really no excuse to have a genderless category and then just not have women in there when there's been so many incredible albums from women um, artists. Like where was Florence and the Machines album? Yeah, Florence's, where was Crash? Like, Like these were
2: the albums that like dominated the year for me. So, yeah where's I wasn't thinking about the men
4: <laughs> exactly I, and you know people were like saying um like being annoyed at Harry Styles for winning so many awards it's like it's not his fault <laughs> he didn't ask <laughs> he's not going to turn down an award it's you know it's it's down <laughs> to the people who pick the winners and who nominate the artists we need to look at like how boards are formed it's no that i
0: think people don't know who to look at when it comes to like who makes the awards possible and so the instinct is always to turn at the artist for getting the award it's like well they literally are just invited
4: you know it's like we're clueless it was, it was like when Harry won best... Was it best album at the Grammys? It was like, well, yay for him. But also, it's not him that picks the winner. Do you know, he didn't pick himself. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> we know Harry's spinning renaissance, okay?
4: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a bad album either, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think that they're both great albums just to, for very different audiences. And... um Yeah, I think that people need to just, you know, think a little deeper. Don't just lash out at the person that's getting the the accolade. I think it's really about, you know, looking at the processes that um, overlook um, marginalized talent rather than, you know, just lashing out at the people who uh, get the most shine.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, In talking about your memoir, which is awesome, by the way, Um, There are so many uh, you you, you go through so you go through so many like harrowing autobiographical tales. And I'm as it's like it's a pleasure to hear your perspective on it. Just like told, I would say, for the most part, diplomatically, actually, given how much like people seem to brand you one way or the other as like being like a firebrand, basically. But my question, my first question for you about the memoir is were there and what was the most pleasurable part of writing it of just actually sitting down and being like you know possessing your story in this way
4: I think the most pleasurable part of the experience was finishing it Um, <laughs> oh, that speaks to me. You are a writer. That speaks to me. <laughs> I, I, mean, it, I mean, if you've, you know, you've, read, you've read it, it's, it's a tough read. It's hard and it's been a tough life. I don't, yeah. you know, by no means have had the hardest life, but it's been tough. And I think really that is, um, you know, the crux of the book is that everyone's life is tough and we all have moments of transition through getting through it. Um, And um, I think the best part of writing it was being able to revisit moments from my younger years as an adult and looking at it through different eyes and being able to hug myself as a child and, you know, just like... Look at it from a different angle and also be able to root it in things that were happening at that time. We had a piece of legislation uh, in the UK called Section 28, which basically is uh, the don't say gay bill, uh, mm-hmm. where you couldn't talk about, you couldn't promote, in the words of Margaret Thatcher, you couldn't promote homosexuality in schools, um, which basically sanctioned homophobic bullying and Uh, basically fucked an entire generation of queer people up. Um, So I went to school during that and um, it was hellish. Um, But it doesn't just stop there because it really filters into your young adult years. And um, it kind of pushed me into harm's way in regards to child abusers and um, all of that. Uh, You can read the book, (laughs) but it it was was really, (laughs) it it was a really tough, um, it was a tough road. And I, you know, we're seeing a resurgence of that. So I really wanted to um, just reinforce the fact that we've been here before and nothing good comes of it. So um, yeah, and also just wake people up to uh, the, the fact that this doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It has real world consequences. So when people advocate, in um anti-trans ways they're advocating for people to lose their lives and livelihoods and uh become disenfranchised to the point where uh that some people lose the world to live and unfortunately I think you know if if you know you two have trans friends and um you know we we we've all seen so many things happen just within like the lives of our friends and um none of that should happen it you know we should be able to live a life of dignity and a life where joy is central rather than trauma
2: yeah i mean even thinking about um this week you know i mean you you were the first person uh that i saw the news about um brianna gay Um, posted, um, you know, about her murder this week. Um, Mm -hmm. and it brought to light a lot of, um, the fact that legislation, I guess, in Britain is, you put it in your book as well, you know, like, um, it's a lot of bad legislation there that really mirrors, like, America, Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like even more in an intense way, you know, and the idea that even um on her death certificate won't even be able to list um her own name. Um, you know, and then you sort of have all this. I don't know. I feel like um JK Rowling is just like lurking the streets of London every day of um, being in the news. It really feels like it's it's sort of intense um anti-trans um sentiment that's growing in Mm. london in the uk i mean does it feel different than when you were
4: younger um does it feel like things have improved i think things have improved for the lgb community exponentially Um, And I will also say, you know, I live in London. London's probably the best place in the UK that you can live as a trans person. We've got an incredible Mm -hmm. mayor who's absolutely trans inclusive and runs multiple campaigns throughout the year uh, with regards to trans safety, marches at Pride. Um, celebrates trans pride so you know we i'm very very lucky to live in london i'm I'm very very proud to be a londoner but the rest Mm -hmm. of the uk is like bedlam and um (laughs) it's it's a mess um in all honesty um and anti-trans rhetoric is growing it's being seen as a legitimate um a legitimate response to things that people don't understand trans you know anti trans pundits and commentators are being centralized instead of actual trans people when talking about um what it means to be trans um and just like the, you know the 1980s i mean we we all remember the 1980s and early 90s when gay men were being painted as child abusers and um and you know potential threats to the safety of um the public at large. And, um, we're seeing the same thing happen with trans people. But, um, I think with the book, I wanted to make people aware about who gains from that and why are we accepting a government weaponizing its own citizens? That should be a a crime. It's It's a human rights violation. Um, the UK is slipping down massively um, when it comes to our human rights record. Um, So I I just wanted to kind of contextualise it and also, you know, reframe it. And so many of these people that are fighting for, um, you know, the disenfranchisement of the trans community are really going to look back in like 10 to 15 years and really cringe and try to, and basically struggle to try and justify their behaviours because it doesn't it doesn't serve anybody and it's also not in accordance to the law there's laws that are protecting us but we're seeing the prime minister which is Wild, we're seeing multiple conservative prime ministers because they can't seem to hold on to one. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically go against the law, um, what the law says, and go against what medical healthcare professionals say to center their own opinions on um who they think should have access to trans um trans-affirmative healthcare and what spaces we should be in, even though the law says what spaces we are allowed in and our healthcare system and scientists have said what is and what isn't reversible and who should have access to what medications.
0: Absolutely minor point. I just want to say like the gay community in general, I feel like has done a pretty good job of like ironically calling people mother who are generally villains in real life. Like character like characters on TV and movies, for example, we'll say Lydia Tara's mother. One person we have never even approached in this way is Margaret Thatcher. It will never be Margaret Thatcher ironically is <laughs> rad or whatever. Like it, like like not one percent ever. I just think that's like very interesting for someone of that. It's
4: definitely not mother. She's just, you know, like transphobic aunt or grandma. Right. Yeah. She's right. the
2: movie mother. Yes, the right, yes, yes,
4: yes. (laughs) yeah. Mother exclamation point, lowercase mother. (laughs) She's much more like the Babadook, to be honest. (laughs) Listed in
0: the Wikipedia page, other Babadooks, yes. (laughs) Margaret listed first. Um, I I want to talk about just um, your interest before you were a model in modeling. Like, it seems like you took an interest in it almost... Not just from like from a representation point of view, but almost like intellectually, like there's like there you had there's a certain power in being a model and a certain like voice you can give via that line of work. Uh, And how did you feel once you basically, you know, became a professional model?
4: I don't know, because I honestly didn't really see myself as a model because I wasn't conventionally attractive. And I didn't come at modeling from the perspective of, I want to feel beautiful. I want to look beautiful. I want to, you know, that from that kind of thing, which I think a lot of people um, associate wanting to be a model with. I really came at it from the perspective of really enjoying um, like what I was seeing in magazines with regards to being creative and storytelling, Um, I was obsessed with Alexander McQueen. I was obsessed with Nick Mm -hmm. Knight. I was obsessed with the way that fashion could um, make people feel things. And I was also massively aware with the fact that fashion was really one of the only industries where women and gay men were centralized. And, um, you know, there was room for people who were different and um you know there was an there was an element of storytelling that i really connected with and i thought you know what i want to use fashion as a way to talk about my experiences and um maybe open people's minds that way it was really before there was any Um, any of that really in the industry. Of course, like people spoke about their experiences, but the idea of activism, um, especially trans activism being merged with modelling, I hadn't really seen that. Um, So it it excited me and it it was great for my drive and it it felt like I was doing something purposeful. It does feel like I'm doing something purposeful. And... um, It's great to see how the industry since then, um, obviously not just because of my impact, like because, you know, I think that there's been a a real, um, a turning point within the industry and the industry really does stand behind causes, uh, champions, marginalized groups. Um, There's been a lot of conversations with regards to diversity and inclusion to a greater degree than there has been in other industries. So, um, yeah, it's been a really big honor to be part of the change. And, you know, we're not done. There's always another um, conversation to be had. There's always much more uh, representation to um, be explored. So um, I think it's, you know, I, I feel really proud to A, be trans and B, to be a voice for people who don't have my platform or access or privilege. Yeah, we had um, Edward
2: on the show too, you know. uh, Seems like y'all are really like shaking the table more, at least than American fashion um, is. He certainly is. I call
4: him Uncle Edward. (laughs) 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 Like um, Edward is just, um, I've got so many nice things to say about Edward, but I don't even know where to start a lot of the time because when somebody takes a chance on you, um, and brings you in, in a largely unprecedented way, um, to, you know, be a contributing editor of British Vogue is, is beyond my dreams, you know, um, to even be, I mean, I remember the first time that I shot for Vogue, I just couldn't believe that I was there. And then I've done three Vogue covers. So I've done Teen Vogue in America. I've done, and I know, I've done two British Vogue Um, covers one was internal and the other one was um a print cover so uh yeah it's just incredible to have these opportunities and to you know call edward a friend as well as um a a mentor Uh,
2: as you were crafting your uh memoir as well um you know it's so exciting to be getting new just sort of trans stories out there i know you know we're talking about your memoir now and i know uh my friend raquel willis just um did her cover reveal today yeah, for her memoir, and it's um as more voices are mm-hmm. you know appearing in the memoir space sort of who did you look to um sort of for inspiration for um this memoir were there some favorites of yours, or were there sort of non trans authors too who you were sort of like, um, wanted to emulate?
4: Honestly, I didn't. I, I, I try, I really mm. tried not to, um, make this book like anything that I'd seen before. I really wanted to just merge my experiences and almost like use it as a case study rather than, um, just a straight up memoir, which I'm sure that we'll be seeing more of because trans bodies are so politicised, it's hard to break it apart from, um, you know, policy and um, being involved in a culture war, you know, we, we don't get to live outside of that. We we are politicised to the point where it is, you know, it's impossible to break that apart. But I, I'm really, really proud to be in this position. And I think it's incredible that we're seeing m- many more trans people um, share their stories, because ultimately, that's the way that we change things. And also, that's the way that people who aren't trans see that there are so many different kinds of ways um, to be trans and so many different experiences within the umbrella under the umbrella um and also if we if we all don't share our stories then it just keeps happening and that has been a big part of the problem is that people have died with their stories still inside them and there's been so many different um you know, stories that could have changed the world that just didn't see the light of day because of the HIV and AIDS epidemic or being murdered before your time or all of the different things that can happen as a result of transphobia and systemic failures. So I think the more opportunities and the more visibility uh, that our community um, is able to grasp onto, um, the more chance we have of having future generations of trans people who don't actually need to live within um, these parameters of trauma and pain um, and can live, um, you know, the life that they want, which is what we're fighting for. We're just just fighting to live, you know, which is really, really hard. But also we're fighting for a better future for people who maybe aren't even born yet. Um, One thing you've
0: said before is that how Twitter is an awful space for trans people like just like you know on random days you may have to deal with some unspeakable horror from somebody you have no idea who they are or maybe you do know who they are you know just for example and I was thinking what's the most ideal social media experience for trans people or like where, where they can go I don't know how else to put it.
4: I don't know, really. I think that it's really down to the individual and and your personal relationship with social media. What is great for one person will be really terrible for the next. Personally, I can't think of anything worse um, with regards to um, having social media than having a TikTok. Just personally, because it would spin me out because I don't have that kind of personality type. <laughs> you know, I'm quite introverted and I like to live in the real world and not, you know have to really deal with validation or um, you know numbers and views and going viral and all of that kind of stuff it just seems like a never-ending quest for virality and um, I don't know I think that that's going to play eventually with people's sense of where they get their validation from so personally it's not really for me. Um, Twitter is great for some people in terms of how they get their news but then if you're of any marginalised experience, mainly, you know, trans people and black people, is just kind of exposing you to um, harm in terms of trolls. So I don't know. I think also you just need to think about how you use it and what are you, what are your expectations. So, um, yeah, I think just be mindful about how all social media platforms are making you feel. Um, and don't just feel that you need to just endlessly give and give, and give to these platforms that really are just public, um, you know, privately owned businesses, owned by billionaires, um, who are feasting off of our data and conflict. So (laughs) um, yeah, just um, be mindful of it, really. I think all of them have their positives, um, and all of them have their negatives, but you just need to make sure that it's a good space for you and that you're using it in a way that's healthy.
2: One thing that was really interesting in the book, uh, which I don't think I knew about, uh, it was, it was, um, was that you, when you started out DJing, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I sort of want to know, like, uh, what was that experience like for you then? And sort of like, what were like your favorite things that uh, you used to play? Your favorite <sighs> songs, you know, or like genres, like what what kind of um, genres did you spin?
4: Well, I say d j loosely because <laughs> she, <laughs> she um was um playing the gay bars. it was fun. I had a really mm-hmm. good time. I had a really good time um but it was yeah, I was playing like largely pop and dance and um, you know, just like the queer bangers, really, but uh, yeah, I had a really good time. I think it was just the 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 years where I found myself, and um, what better space to find yourself than in a club, and um, you know it was it was great at times, and it was really awful at times. you know, there's nothing worse than being in a nightclub when you really don't wanna be out, um mm-hmm. kind of wanna like I don't know. <laughs> I just stood behind the decks with a screw face, just pressing the play on Britney (laughs) Spears. It works. (laughs) <laughs> Which I'm sure all gay club DJs can relate to. But um yeah, it was it was fun. I had a really good time and I got to um meet so many different kinds of people and um plug into my community and just feel really free with how I express myself. You know, I didn't have a, have to worry about what my co-workers were gonna think about um changes within my appearance or um I just I didn't feel like I had to really censor myself, uh, which I think a lot of trans people do in the workplace. So uh yeah, it was it was great. I had a really, really fun time. Um, it was fun until it wasn't, and then mm. I knew it was time to hang up the heels um <laughs> and the headphones and just yeah, focus much more on fashion. Mm. <laughs>
0: I will say, is there, is there British pop music that that you are? I guess you don't. You're not in America, so you don't. You're not concerned about this. But for example, like I was at a uh, a pregame recently, and like somebody put on Sugar Babes, which is like unprecedented here. Like it's pretty rare you would fucking hear Sugar Babes at a pregame. <laughs> is there music you're frustrated is stuck in the UK that like seemingly like you guys are only celebrating, and you know, over here we're like blind to it.
4: Um. Music's pretty universal these days, but I'm really glad that you guys got onto Charlie X. Okay,
0: we did do uh, a good queen. job there. And finally, we're <laughs> finally. Yes. We really the Queens get her I, now.
4: Yeah. I feel like it was it wasn't really until you guys got onto <laughs> <his stuff> <laughs> <laughs> that the other gays jumped on her and made her a superstar. So um thank you for that, American gays. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sure Lewis was tired of me talking about Charlie Young last year, but I saw the crash tour like I don't know, like seven times. Oh so wow! I was, I was, I was following her like the Grateful Dead. Okay, <laughs> I, it was festivals. <laughs> it was New York, LA. <laughs>
4: yeah, she's great. Fair I was Browns. actually with her at the Brits. She was, um, she's, she's a great time. She was um, walking around with um, a bottle of Dom Perignon. <laughs> In, in a t-shirt saying real winner, because uh, she, <laughs> she didn't win, but she is the real winner. She's Charlie XX, so you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh listen, I'm glad I wish I was at that pregame list because sugar Bay is I'm also the only person who will put on like um I'll put on the Saturdays, I'll put on Girls Aloud. <gasps> oh my god, uh, Saturdays. That
4: is Have you seen um that drag queen called Bailey J. Mills? No. <gasps> oh my god. So this is maybe a British thing that you guys could get into. It's a drag queen called, um, Bailey J. Mills and Mm -hmm. they, it's just so, sorry, they're non-binary and they is, the humor is just so niche. It's very, very strange. It's like, sometimes you don't really know what you're watching, but it's just the funniest thing ever. And, um, they do this sketch where they're Frankie from the Saturdays with the swoosh haircut from the movie. (laughs) And um, Frankie from the Saturdays, the actual Frankie from the Saturdays, just stitched it, and they do it together. And it's the most deranged thing that you'll ever see, but also complete genius.
2: (laughs) Okay, I'm obsessed. I'm going to have to find that. that's good news for us. Okay, great. (laughs) Uh, Well, Barone, thank you so much for being
0: here. Of course. Thank you. I love your podcast. Oh, we love you. Oh, Jesus. That's a crazy compliment coming from you. Your book is so awesome. So thank you so much. And you're awesome. Up next, Lewis and I are going to talk about sex,
2: baby. This week, Penn Badgley, star of the searing um, <laughs> documentary, You.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, Which you were in as a documentarian yourself.
2: Yeah, you know, um, my greatest role.
0: <laughs> Michael Moore, I would argue Michael Less. That's I'm you. still
2: waiting for the actors on Actors Invite. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you and Annette Benning. She's like, who the fuck are you? Uh, Penn broke his silence this week about how sex scenes in movies have sort of ruined the sanctity of marriage.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah.
2: Um, what would encourage someone to be so brave? <laughs> Uh, now listen. He basically said to um you showrunner Sarah Gamble, uh who we've had on keep it. I yes. love Sarah. Uh, she said he said, "Can I just do no more intimacy scenes?" Uh, and Sarah, who's a lovely person, of course said, "Um, uh, yes." You know, like she's not going to force an actor to do sex scenes. I don't know many showrunners who are not monsters who would. You know, unless you're a Sean Cody model coming to the director and being like, you know what? No more sex scenes. I'm married. (laughs) I I could get uh, agreeing with the actor. But I still feel like that is a normal decision that was then compounded by weirdness of him saying it was to protect the sanctity of his marriage.
0: Right. Um, I saw one comment online that I felt was most true, which is, did he get caught cheating? And now he's doing these extra steps to, you know, really be in the relationship, show he's committed. And this extra step is, you know, sort of compensatory. It feels very compensatory.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, I am thinking about when um, Melissa Reeves on Days of Our Lives uh, had an affair uh, with the actor who played Peter Blake and her husband basically removed her from the show. Wow. Wow. Uh, and she eventually came back, but uh, that actor has never been on the show since.
0: Wow, real-life soap dish shit going on here. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy Moriarty, show yourself. <laughs>
2: uh, so that's what it sounded like, you know? Um, but this brings up a bigger conversation that is being had online. And as we said in our intro, um, this could just be like six people having this conversation because what happens is a Gen Z person with like 500 followers will tweet something and then um, someone with um, 100,000 followers will retweet it and argue with them and then they'll blow it up. Right. It's it's um, a
0: quote tweet based anger. Yes. Yeah.
2: But there is this sort of conversation happening now about whether or not sex scenes in movies and TV are invasive.
0: (laughs) Or, yeah, essential to the plot is, I feel like, something people argue a lot. To which I say, you know what else isn't essential to a movie? Jokes. You know, like, lots of things that aren't essential to understanding the narrative of a movie. Make the movie what it is. Make the movie the thing you want to watch. Guess what's actually boring? Most stories. We've heard (laughs) every story. I don't need to service the story and the story alone in order to be entertained. It's like the frills and the, you know... The, the artfulness of whatever else is being done that's interesting and routinely that's sex scenes.
2: Yeah, you know, I feel like the one thing we could actually use less of in movies is plot.
0: Yes! Oh, please. Again, I mean, like, I've talked excessively about the movie Metropolitan, but basically there is no story. It's people hanging out and then people get mad at certain people and then people have crushes on other people and then we move on from there.
2: It's all vibes, you know? Yes. And, uh, That's what we need more of in movies and less of this reintroduction of, I guess, like the Hayes code.
0: It felt like these people really were like, oh, I love when we finally regulated content, hardcore and, you know, (laughs) deleted all the racy shit.
2: We're going to put people on TV back to sleeping in separate beds like Lucy and Ricky.
0: Oh, yeah. Real Mike and Carol Brady shit. Yeah. People who don't own toilets. (laughs) Did they not have a Which, toilet? In the well, it, it's it, I, I, I forget what show was the first to show one, but like the movie Psycho was the first movie to show a toilet, for example.
2: It literally showed a toilet flushing. Um, and Psycho, by the way, is a fantastic film. Um, right. Maybe my favorite, Hitchcock. And um, the things that Hitchcock does in this movie to break the Hays Code specifically is fantastic like every aspect of that movie is about fuck you to the haze code which was a self-imposed code of conduct that hollywood inflicted on itself in the midst of um people feeling that you know like um sexual mores were like out of control etc like very like babylon era um you know we came out of the jazz age being too sexy and then people were like dial it back but it's the toilet it's a. It starts literally with Marion having an extramarital affair, which is yes. a no-no. Right. Please don't do that. Um, she's she, Janet Lee is naked uh, right. in the shower. Uh, you can't even show women in their underwear. She's in her underwear on the poster for the film too.
0: Right, right, right. Tony Perkins has a gorgeous pencil neck, which is essentially queer, uh, <laughs> even if the character is not. Um, <laughs> And yet no ass, which is essentially not queer. So anyway, he's breaking boundaries left and right.
2: Yeah, stealing money—that's a crime, you know. Yeah. Uh,
0: anyway, and John Gavin yeah. in that movie so hot. Anyway,
2: honestly, I do enjoy the ways that um, the movie sort of like steps outside of what was allowed in cinema. Then I think we need to bring some inventiveness back, you know.
0: That would that makes sense to me. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, otherwise, every movie is just going to be
2: Jordan Firstman giving a blowjob on
0: camera. Shout out oh, to Sunday. yeah. Right. So Jordan <laughs> yeah. Firstman, who's a queer comic, who I guess has not been on Keep It. Am I wrong? No. no, He's a like, gay guy we know. Yeah, yeah we um, gay guy yeah, we
2: know.
0: He's in a movie at Sundance where he gets like a real life blowjob. I'm sure you're yeah. now thinking of that Chloe Sevigny movie, Brown Bunny. Brown Bunny! You know, right? Yes, Vincent Gallo, <laughs> and the absolutely scorching uh, review from Roger Ebert. The time about it. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, Because I remember also when I was in college, that movie Short Bus coming out, which had some real sexuality mm-hmm. going on in it. And I guess what's unusual about that movie is that we didn't end up seeing a lot more like that, that yeah. uh, it still became too risky for people to really, you know, embark in crazy sexual situations. Jordan Firstman gave a quote about it being like, well, I'm a gay guy. If there's a dick nearby, I put it in my mouth that it doesn't mean much to me. It's not precious to me or whatever. And, you know, uh, confrontational take, maybe not everybody's take, but at the same time, you would think there would be like maybe four movies a year that were like that, you know? Yeah. Um,
2: I feel like there was a period too where like gays were making like independent films that were sort of like story, but also porn. I feel like there were like one or two of those that came out like a few years ago or something like early, like 2013 or something. But it really feels like that is a thing that you get to the brink of And one or two people do it, and then you move on from it. Because it's just sort of like, it's not really marketable,
0: you know? Yeah. And maybe it's not even sexy either. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Do you remember that Brian McKnight album he put out where he's explicitly singing about sex? Yes. I forget what the words were, but you just (laughs) realize after a while, like, I do not need to hear you saying anatomical terms for things that are going into other things during sex to get through this song. Yeah. Unless it's Lil' Kim. Right. That's different. You see, but that's like attitudinal. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, like you're getting around like kind of abject sincerity with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I personally think we're in the market for one great, I don't know about unsimulated gay sex scene, but uh a a memorable gay sex scene. I I still think the one in bros last year where like Billy gets it on with, I think a couple of people, there's a very funny three-way scene in that was a step in the right direction because there are parts of sex that I feel like we don't have a lot of conversation about literally the moment to moment things in sex that occur that are sometimes funny or sometimes, you know, uh, leave somebody out or whatever. There's like lots of things to explore in those moments that I don't think we've seen much of. So I'm interested in that.
2: I think sex is, yeah, just kind of boring on TV right now. You know, TV and film. I think that there hasn't, like, when when the White Lotus rim job scene is maybe, like, the most exciting thing we've had in, like, years, what are we doing here?
0: Yeah, right. And also, that's exciting because it's just a reveal behind a door, right? Like, we don't expect to see it, and then, like, bam, nudity. But like, It's more, it's more a gag than a scene.
2: But remember how unsexy the Fifty Shades movies were?
0: Oh, my God. Imagine thinking about those movies. I felt like they were, first of all, lit like a Panera. And then then second of all, the unmistakably non-chemistry chemistry chemistry between the two leads. Okay, not
2: too much on Panera.
0: (laughs) Ain't nothing wrong with Panera. Please.
2: I was in some random American city. I don't remember which one, like, a couple years ago or so. And there was a Panera around, so my friend and I got lunch there and... As we were paying, I was like, oh, wait, um, I still have a Panera membership. And I gave <laughs> him
0: my phone number. <laughs> oh, my God. Not you scanning into Panera. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back. Keep it.
2: And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. I'm going to go first because my Keep It is very Impressive. Please do. Valentine's Day used to mean something. Okay. Oh, okay. Like, remember in school, um, the the heteronormative task of um writing a Valentine to everybody?
0: Oh, yes. Me sending like a Daffy Duck themed Valentine to my bully. That was like <laughs> And you had to make
2: one for everybody.
0: Yeah. Like, here you go, Jeff. Love you. I think
2: one year actually, I um I redrew um goosebump book covers uh and made personalized valentines for everyone in my fourth grade class
0: that is amazing as in you would trace the font on the cover and stuff
2: yeah i i um i used to draw and i used to draw like uh like like little comic books and things in like fourth and fifth grade um and i would i would hand them out to people as gifts
0: oh that's Very adorable and thoughtful. What happened to that instinct? Do you think it was just squashed (laughs) by the cruelty of life or what happened? Probably. Probably. You know? Um, Or I found drugs. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You you became satisfied. Yes. I
2: was a sixth grade tweaker. You know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My favorite R.L. Stein book. Yes. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) What happened to the importance of Valentine's Day where it felt like novel expressing your love for someone? You know? Um sure. this morning I woke up and obviously I am inundated with Instagrams of lovers, you know, being like, This is my husband, I've loved him for several years, or so like uh the best year with this man, etc.
0: Um pointing this guy, all that, yeah.
2: Here's the thing. If you post like that two hundred and sixty-five days a year, <laughs> then it's not special on Valentine's Day, okay?
0: Yeah, that is true. That is like, true.
2: If so many people posting um, a series of photos with their boyfriend or with their girlfriend or whoever, it's like, okay, you do this every day.
0: Right. Unfortunately, if people participate avidly on social media and they're in a relationship, inevitably their relationship is a big part of their brand, which means that any expression of sincerity is unfortunately wrapped up in the whole thing they like to promote about themselves. It ultimately sincerity is going to feel schmaltzy and false always because it's what they produce it's their content
2: Mm -hmm. was love always a brand i I don't mean to feel like carrie bradshaw here but you know (laughs) like was it it always a brand or was you know the like celebrity like uh celebrity gossip and you know on like the brandification of our personalities through social media turned um dating someone into a personality
0: Right. I think I only appreciate these kinds of posts from celebrity couples where they're both truly celebrities. That is fun to see. This is a day for Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. Mm -hmm. It's not a day for this person I follow because he does CrossFit tips and then his boyfriend, you know, maybe we'll get into acting someday.
2: Yes, you know, or um, the boyfriend who you've definitely had sex with before and the husband who you've never
0: met. Yes, right. <laughs> I had a whole bit on Kimmel about this. There's the one with the abs and the one with the job. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the
2: Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen thing is very apt because I feel like a lot of couples that, you know, being a couple is their brand online is, um, there's not much going on with either of them individually.
1: It's no. like, I don't right. know
2: what job either of you do. I don't know your interests. You seem to just do things. You seem to just appear together.
0: Right. Your whole relationship is a play for a platform. Which, um, enjoy that. Hope it lasts. Bet it won't. Yeah. And
2: you know what? The difference is that you and I were simply not born.
0: <laughs> how do we tell people how hard it is to be fascinating? How <laughs> do we move on being these people? Yes. Louis,
2: this is my longest relationship.
0: Yeah, I know. Jesus. <laughs> I, you know what? I don't hate the ins I don't hate that. Uh, observation, and it speaks to me because guess what? I'm not doing dating.
2: And you know what? Listen, we've, you and I have tried some polyamory before. We've had <laughs> thirds. We've had <laughs> no. thirds
0: on the yes. show.
2: <laughs>
0: some are selfish than others. Yes.
2: <laughs> and, now, and now
0: we're strictly
2: monogamous.
0: I love yes. it. Right. That's true. No. That's We we, we found a resolve. Yes. Uh, I'm the more domestic one ultimately. There's always one.
2: Uh we're we're just saying this so people start talking about our relationship on Reddit like they talk about the pods boys.
0: Oh, right. Guys, they're nice straight people. And then John, you know, uh, love it, is gay. That's all that's going on there. I mean, it's not that fascinating. I, I know them well. <laughs> they're like the nice cousins you see at Thanksgiving. Yeah. All right, Lewis.
2: What's your keep it?
0: You know what? This is not going to make me look good. I feel bad about this. Keep it. <laughs> but this, you know, stirred up a lot of controversy a couple months ago. And good controversy. I was happy mm. it happened. But I unfortunately have to give my keep it to Gene Dealman, uh, 23K, Du Commerce, 1080, Bruxelles,
1: which is not <laughs> how you
0: say that. It's a French movie. But as you, it's the Chantal Ackerman movie that came in first in the sight and sound all-time poll. We decided it was, you know, better than Citizen Kane and Vertigo <laughs> and all the movies that dominate this list. So I saw it recently in uh uh The Arrow uh here in LA. Great theater. Ran into some of my favorite critics. Alonzo Duralde I was happy to see him. Christy Lemire, whom I've followed since the uh she t- momentarily took over for Ebern and Roper. Love talking with them. This movie is. Do you do you know what this movie is about? Mm-hmm. It's a three-hour movie of a woman basically doing day-to-day, moment-to-moment tasks. It's it's not a real-time movie, but it's supposed to feel real-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's going through her life, you know, making food, shopping, um, feeding her son. And then something at the end occurs that switches everything up. Uh, you're watching her routine fall apart very um, slightly. Like, there's there's some slight decay going on in her day-to-day life. If this movie were an hour and 45, I'd be like, all right, this is a player for, you know, I don't know about best of all time, but like a, a four star movie. I understand that the monotony of the movie is the point, And it's mm-hmm. artistically satisfying in that way, like what it goes for, what it, what it establishes about the rhythms of life and why one would need to interrupt that with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe a. a a shocking surge of some kind, but man, it is fucking tough. I mean, it is just like you, it's also like you get it, you, you get the point and you, it's fun to talk about afterwards, but beyond that, I don't know that it plays with any of the things that makes cinema typically great. And I feel like even if there was like some amazing dialogue or some amazing um other character in the movie or something, I might be, more willing to sincerely consider it among like an all-time classic or something but it's just not the best movie of all time it's a it's a crazy thing to say about this movie now
2: wouldn't you say that the monotony and there being no jokes and no other interesting characters is what women think every day when they're working in the home (laughs) and maybe that maybe that lewis is the point of the film
0: this comment, what you just said right now, is why Chantal Ackerman isn't with us anymore. She's like, I have to, <laughs> I, I have to get out of here. Um,
2: when you think about it, uh, Jeannie Dillman is the um, a simple favor of the 1970s. Wow. She's I, Anna when- Kendrick doing her monotony on Instagram Live, you know, and um, the disruption <laughs> at the end is Blake Lively.
0: I can't believe I never thought of it that way before. Sorry, I'm not on serious hard drugs, so I, of course, never thought of it that way before. Delphine Sayrig gives an affectless, excellent performance. its I think my friend Chris also put it well about this movie. It's basically a trick that can be played once, which mm-hmm. is you get the point of it afterwards, and you receive it, and it sits with you, but ultimately... It's one long gimmick. I would call it a gimmick of a movie. Mm.
2: Um, I would actually say what's interesting about the film is that um, it's this slice-of-life thing from the 70s, right? And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, David Lynch plays with this a lot uh, in, you know, Twin Peaks and his films, you know, playing on sort of like old soap operas of the time. And I feel like The original, like original soap operas, which were which women would watch in the household, right? Um, from like the 60s and 70s. When I watch like old clips of like Days of Our Lives from like 1967 or something, they are really boring slice of life stories. And it feels like it is taking this to like a cinematic exploration of that.
0: Um, do you know what I was watching clips of recently? The TV show Peyton Place, which had, Mm. um, Mia Farrow and Ryan O'Neill. And it's fascinating because they're going to obviously turn into much different actors over the next years. But to see them in sort of conventional TV form is so surprising because Mia became one of our you know most interesting movie stars of the, the 70s and 80s. I think also something that bothers me about it is it's a movie you do want to talk about, but it's a short conversation. I don't think it's it, it takes you in a bunch of different directions. You say the one thing that needs to be said. You receive the point. And then that's it. Maybe that's enough for some people. It's not colorful enough for me. You know what's so interesting about Peyton
2: Place too? Uh it was created by uh Grace Metalis, who yes. um once there was this interview John Waters gave of like his icons and like his books and like um like his literary people uh it was like her like lillian hellman fran lebowitz or whatever uh and he said that like um grace who did peyton place like her story's amazing because like as soon as she got fame she left her husband took to martinis became an alcoholic bought cadillacs and moved to the plaza hotel in new york and committed suicide
3: (laughs) perfection
0: (laughs) finally someone gets it jesus christ Oh, speaking of Fran Lebowitz, do you know what I am obsessed with right now? No. Fran Lebowitz, from time to time, appears on like a morning show, like CBS News. This, you know, the shows that are called things mm-hmm. like that. Every fucking time, whoever is responsible for I- introducing the interview segment says something like this. No matter what happens, Fran Lebowitz is talking. <laughs> or <laughs> it, it's always some like. At the end of the day, whether you agree with her or don't agree with her, she'll be speaking. It's just like, what? <laughs> like, it's also like, it's one of those things where she doesn't have a lot of biographical information you can really talk about. Like, she only has the two books. And, you know, like, she worked for Interview Magazine, whatever. But ultimately, you have to be like, there she goes again with one of her opinions. It's so funny. Who's doing these interviews? Sarah Polly? <laughs> no. this Fran Lieberwood's was talking. Yes. <laughs> Uh, in this case, it was Mo Rocca, who, by the way, I sometimes forget, has led my ideal life, which is he was a Daily Show correspondent, mm-hmm. and now he does things like interview actresses for a living. I saw Mo Rocca interviewing Brenda Vaccaro once about an afternoon she spent with Barbara Streisand and Sandy Dennis. Bitch, that's my look.
2: <laughs> I actually do foresee a future w- for you where you talk with older actresses just
0: about like um, an afternoon in their lives. Right, and then, you know, somebody responsible who has the patience adapts that into like a 90-minute film stars don't die in Liverpool type movie.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's really what I always remember Bo just because he's one of the people who we sort of, our generation sort of grew up with via like VH1.
0: Right, yes, because those talking head shows needed the one, you know, yeah. queer-ish guy.
2: When you think about it, we are sort of the, um, best-week-ever hosts of our generation.
0: I mean, that is the nicest thing anything will ever say about me, and I understand <laughs> you're talking about us ourselves, but I'm going to go ahead and accept that compliment we gave ourselves because I don't aspire to anything else. Um, I
2: would feel like... um, Who, cause who are, like, the original... Best week ever host. Like, who would you and I be? Was
0: it Paul F. Tompkins and uh who else was on that show? Uh, but you're talking about just the talking heads and like all those I love the, the 80s talking, shows, Yeah, the people like who, Michael who Ian program. Black and stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I might be Rachel Harris, um, mm. who wore glasses and had a sort of like Garofalo light vibe.
2: I think I sort of have like a Gary Cole thing about me.
0: Just sort of like maybe angry all the time, yeah. but <laughs> sometimes sweet. I forgot Gary Cole would be on that.
2: Yeah. Everybody did like I love the 80s. Yeah. It's truly fascinating. I feel like you could even get like, you even got like Beyonce to do it at one point.
0: Right. Yeah. No. uh, Yeah. They had footage of everybody somehow. They'd ask him about, yeah, you remember a Rubik's Cube, don't you? Get in the studio. Um, (laughs) But no, for a moment, you would, in the summer, you would go crazy with your friends because, yes, Hell Sparks is talking about whatever Duran Duran. What a crazy Mm -hmm. moment we all have.
2: And now we have TikTok which is the wild wild west and let me tell you we need like vh1 or somebody get on tiktok and give us some official you know things like that again i don't want to hear someone some random teenager talking about what a rubik's cube is because they'll probably be describing something else
0: right (laughs) right misinformation (laughs) unfact checked (laughs) wow you're right now in retrospect i love the 80s feels like journalism like yeah actually like it has more sources than the average you know buzzfeed article it basically does count all right thanks to
2: Monroe Bergdorf for joining us this week she really did fucking roll. yeah we'll see you next week Keep It is a Crooked Media production our senior producer is Kendra James our producer is Chris Lord and our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield our executive producers are Ira Madison III that's me and Louis Vertel this episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, keep it as filmed in front of a live studio
1: audience.